0: Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Good morning, everyone. Hey, so we have... Well, first off, if you are new here or if it, this is just one of your first couple of times, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at Missio Day. Um I have the privilege of getting to talk to us this morning. One, like, uh, just piece of advice for whenever some of you become pastors in the future, um, just pick a series where you can just kind of pick any chapter you want and then pick the really easy ones, right? Psalm 139 just, like, preaches by itself, so I don't, I don't even need to say much, but I will. Um, hey... We have had a lot of things going on this morning, so let's just take a second, right? Let's locate ourselves in the room. Let's quiet our hearts uh, as we go ahead and jump to the word this morning. We good? All right, now, now let's get to some, uh, some fun stuff. Growing up, uh, my family always had music on. Um, in fact, my, Jamie can attest to this. I, I'm talking about my, uh, my parents. My, my family always has music on right now. My dad will like, go to YouTube on his TV. He thinks it's awesome. Um, and he'll be like, hey, look at this song that I just like, found out. And he'll like show us the music video, and we all just kind of sit there and listen to uh, a song that my dad just discovered. It's real fun. But back in the day, before we had YouTube on our TVs, um, we would throw on a compact disc, and we would just listen to it straight through. And we would always rotate sort of the same seven or eight albums and just listen to them together as a family. And so from front to back, we would be able to sing together, just have a good time while we're doing dishes, whatever. Um, One of our favorite albums was Elton John's Greatest Hits. We were obsessed. By age eight, I knew all the words to Crocodile Rock. Um, What other ones? Your song. Uh, I guess that's why they call it the blues. That is a banger certified, right? Amongst others, right? I loved Elton John's showmanship, his vocal range. It just captured passion, right? Now, at the time, not as much now, but at the time, I could tell you a lot about Elton John. I knew a lot about him, but does that mean that I knew him? No, right? There's a difference, see? Knowing about someone and knowing someone are two very different things, right? And in the same way, Being known and being known about are two very different things, right? I want to do a quick reflection activity. Some of you are worried we're not going to move from our seats. Uh, You don't even have to raise your hand high, okay? You can just kind of do this for me, all right? (laughs) Eyes are up here, right? We're not looking. We're not taking notes of each other. How many of you, again, you can just hold your hand up here, would you say you are truly known, both the ups, the downs, the downs, the positives, and negatives, the dark spots and bright spots, known in a way that makes you feel seen by one person outside of your immediate family, however you define that? Who would say that that's true? Just raise your hand here. How about five people? Raise your hand. 10? 20? 30? Yeah, it probably, yeah. Thank you, Carl. Probably isn't possible. I was going to say, holding lots and lots of relationships is something that is probably not within our capacity, right? So I don't want you, this is not to make you feel bad. Like, man, cool, Jimmy. Now you've pointed out that I'm, don't have, no. Um, As you probably guessed, though, once we get outside of our immediate families, the number of people that truly know us is typically not a large number, right? I bet even if for some of us I left our immediate families in there, it would still be a hard thing to raise our hands for. Right? See, we live in a current cultural context where being known is increasingly rare. Right? We experienced a pandemic that by nature isolated us from one another. We live in communities that are not built for social interaction, but for convenience and efficiency. Right? And we are in a current cultural climate that is increasingly polarized. People seem to want to know something about us, where we stand on a particular issue before they invest in knowing us, right? But knowing about someone and knowing someone are two very different things. We also have personal tendencies that lead us to being known or not known, right? Some of us, and this is not a, a shame activity, so don't, don't be like, man, come on, Jimmy, you're calling me out. No, just, it's just a reality. Some of us are incredibly reserved, right? You protect your being known so tightly until the person reveals that they are trustworthy with you. This might just be a natural reservedness or it might come from past relationships, trauma, experiences, right? Others of us will lay bare our darkest thoughts upon first meeting someone, right? You like meet them and you're like, I did this. (laughs) Nice to meet you, yeah. Um, You get all the negative out immediately in order to see how someone reacts, right? You think, they will eventually know this about this. Uh, know this about me. So if I get it out now, let's see if they run, right? Let's see if they're trustworthy. Right upon this, so that I can see if this is again a relationship worth investing in. I think there's oftentimes nothing we fear more than being known. What happens if they know me and don't love me, right? Reject me, run from me. What does that say about me as a person, right? Am I lovable? So whether it's societal influences, personal bonding obstacles, a fear of being known or a smattering of all of the above, being fully known is a rare commodity, right? Which is where we enter our psalm this morning, right? Psalm 139 is a well-known and often quoted psalm because of some of its beautiful sort of poetic language, right? But it can also be a scary psalm for many of us. So as we continue this morning... I ask that you consider it with fresh eyes. So let's pray as we continue our service this morning. Lord, as we jump into your text this morning, I pray that you are the one on display, not me, not us, Lord. So whatever comes from me, let it be forgotten, but what is from you, Lord, let it be remembered. Your glory, not mine. Your fame, not mine. Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In your son's name I pray, amen. Okay, so we're going to sort of break it down into different uh, sections here. Now, oftentimes in the Psalms, the psalmist will sort of just like, he'll he'll start with a praise of God and then jump into the context after like two verses. It'll be like, God is great. All of my enemies hate me. God is great. You know, sort of like that sandwich. And that is true here, but our context for the psalm isn't until much, much later. And so let's go ahead and look at verses 19 through 22 is where we're going to start this morning. I can click it. Okay, you got it. Okay, this is really small. I'm sorry. You do have, I want to point this out. We started to put Pew Bibles in there. Some of them have large print. Some of them don't. Um, Just because I think it's really, really good to get onto the page sometimes. So if you do want to look at this a little bit more closely, you can jump into Psalm 139 for me. It's about midway through the Bible. I don't know. You can guess. Um, All right, so verses 19 through 22. Let me just read them for you again. If only you, God, would slay the wicked... Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Word of the Lord. (laughs) Um, Now, it's obvious that the psalmist is feeling a bit surrounded by his enemies, right? But what is true of his enemies? Let's look at some of the parallel language here, it it says that there is the wicked, he calls them the bloodthirsty, those with evil intent, those who misuse your name, those who hate you are in rebellion, enemies, right? Now, I think this is incredibly profound, actually, because usually when we think of God's enemies, we think of those who are outwardly opposed to God, right? Like, I hate God, and anyone who loves God, I hate, right? But what is true of the people here? It says they speak of God. So they do talk about God, but what is their intent? It's evil, right? And they misuse his name, right? They take God's name in vain. They speak of following God, might even have some good theology, and yet they are bloodthirsty and have evil intent. Where have we seen this before, right? I have a slide here, but my clicker's not working. Uh, it should be the pick the next one. No, there we go. There, act like I said that. Where do, where have we seen this before? And then this pops up. Yeah, right. I mean, just the reality is is that throughout particular not particularly but throughout American history because I, I can speak on that right. People have used the idea of Jesus saves, as they murder, right? As they oppress, they utilize some of the things in the word in order to do these things, right? We have a picture of the context. The psalmist is surrounded by enemies who misuse God's name. Yet, we know that the rest of the psalm leading up to this talks about God knowing the psalmist, right? And so we're about to explore this a bit more, but the question arises, why does, why does the psalmist talk about God knowing him in a context like this, right? Let's look at verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, these verses seem to jump back to the theme of, no, of being known by God, which they do, right? But I think that they do it in a way that actually relates what we just read to the rest of the psalm. So let's look at that. You see, in verse 23, no, 24, where it says, offensive way in me, right? See if there's any offensive way in me. The word offensive there, another way to translate it is idolatrous. So he's saying, see if there's any idolatrous way in me. See if there's any way that's offensive in relation to God. Why is the psalmist saying this? My best guess is that this is what the haters are saying about him, right? I believe his enemies are disparaging him and calling him idolatrous in order to discredit him as they use God's name in vain, right? We see this playbook even now. Uh, if you're on Twitter, someone who has been using God's name for their own game, gain or to propagate bloodthirsty ways has to, has to disparage the one who's using God's name to uplift in order to disqualify that person's faith so that they're the ones being followed and not the person who's using God's name for good, right? The psalmist, in being accused of being idolatrous, wonders if there's any truth in this, in this claim, Right? And as a result, he writes out the truth that he is known by God and that God loves him in this knowing, right? So let's jump into that reminder that he wrote. So back to verse 1. Now, I've already mentioned this, but it's pretty obvious from the get-go that this psalm is about being known by God, right? They, they sort of paint a picture of God not just knowing about us. If, if it did, if it was just about God knowing about us, I think the psalmist would have stopped at, where is it, where he says, you are familiar with all of my ways. Maybe he would have just thrown that out that But look what he says. You have searched me, O Lord. You know me. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts, right? You discern my going out and lying down. You know my words completely. You hem me in and you lay your hand upon me. Like, this is a lot more than just knowing about someone, right? There's a lot more depth of relationship here. And yet, God does not just stop at knowing, does he? Look at this. You see, God knows all things in all people completely. He always has. He always will. And yet, verse 1 still said that God searched me, right? I I want you to think about this. If God knows me completely, and he does, What is the point of searching me? What is he going to find that he doesn't already know, right? See, Scripture paints an overwhelming picture that God is a searching God. In other words, yes, God knows all things, and yet he does not rob himself of the joy of searching for us and searching us. I want you to consider the parable of the lost sheep, right? Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses them, Does he not leave the 99 in open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it, right? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. He calls his friends, he calls his neighbors, and he says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, right? Who is the shepherd here? It's God, right? Who is the sheep? us. God is a searching God, right? God does not just search us, though, search for us when we're lost, right? The joy of searching and finding his, yet his searching is not just restricted to when we were lost. It, it, it continues now, right? He knows us now, and yet he continues to search our depths now. I want, I want to bring this up because I think this highlights a really, really important truth. God does not just put up with us, Right? God may know us, like, none of you are in this room, so it's fine to say. I know a lot of people, right? That wasn't a brag. (laughs) That sounded like a brag. I know some people, right? And there are some people who I know pretty, even pretty well and put up with, right? And yet there are other people who I know deeply and I'm like, gosh, just like when I'm with them, I want to know them even more, right? Right? And I want to search the depths of them. Granted, I have more to learn, but it's like God knows us already and yet he searches us, right? God does not just know us, right? He likes us, right? He wants to spend time with us. He doesn't just put up with us. Um, I, I now want to consider like what is true of us who are searched by God? Like what is an outcome of that searching, right? So let's jump over to Romans 8. See, in Romans 8, has this little throwaway line when referring to God that I didn't notice until recently. Uh, In referring to God, uh, I think it's verse 27, Paul says, And he who searches our hearts. And he who searches our hearts. Now, he's talking about something. He says something like, I have it up here, but my clicker's not working. Here we go. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit right? So he's talking about something else, but this is a description of God and he who searches our hearts, right? What is the outcome of that searching? What does the passage say is true of us in relationship to God? Go to verse 31. Next next slide. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him Graciously give us all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Against those whom God knows, right? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I'm going to keep reading this because it just it preaches, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, and we considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, right? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers. You guys get the point, but we're still going, right? Neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, right? Come on now. He who searched us, he who knows us is not against us. He who searched us did not spare his son, He who searches us justifies us. He who searches us is interceding for us. So uh, so what shall separate us from his love? Shall us being known by him separate us from his love? No, right? There's no external circumstance and nothing he finds when he searches us that will separate us from his love. As that love is found in Jesus and not in what we've done, right? Right? This truth is incredibly profound and comforting to me, and apparently only me. Um, (laughs) I don't want just to be known, right? I can be known and still be rejected, right? There's this deep-seated fear for me that even those who love me the best, if they continue to search me and know me, they can eventually find something that will make them run. But God, right? God has searched the deepest of our depths, and yet, he has not rejected us, but drawn closer to us and drawn us closer to him. Reflect on this, that God has searched you and God loves you, right? Okay, verses 7 and 12, we still got some more passage. Where can I go where you are not God? That whole section, right? Like, I go here, you're there. I go there, you're here, right? Now, this part of the passage can sort of feel like bad news, right? I like, I like to call this the Rockwell section, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but it's the, I always feel like somebody's watching. I almost hit it. Um, (laughs) What? No, I'm not going to try again. Rockwell is the person who sings this, by the way. Um, Regardless of my joke here, God's presence in all scenarios can be pretty overwhelming and anxiety-producing for people, right? Again, the fear of being found out is ever-present with someone who is ever-present, right? Right? But we've addressed this, right? We must remember that God's grace is not just for our past sin, right? God's grace is big enough to cover our past, our present, and our future. Now we don't continue in sin just because grace abounds, right? But when we do sin, his presence need not be a fear-inducing reality, but a comfort that even once I've sinned, I can run back to his presence because of Jesus, right? Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's a lot of churchy words. The the part that I love is that we now stand in grace, right? We continuously stand in grace. Grace, we can't get out of it, right? We can't get away from grace. We are standing in it. It continually regenerates us. It continually makes us the sons and daughters of God, right? Consider what would be true if we could avoid his presence too, right? It would confirm all of our prior fears, would it not? If I push you away, you stay away, right? Have you ever had a relationship where you like have semi-pushed someone someone away but have desired for them to come back and they just stay away? And you're like, then there's this like, this cycle of like self-hate where it's like, why did I do that? But also you're bummed at them. It's a whole thing, right? What a comfort it is though that even when we want to avoid God, he loves us so much that he stays in our presence, right? Okay, verses 11 and 12. I'll I'll read this one. It's so small. I'm so sorry, everyone. Um, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as, a, is as light to you. This is another comfort, right? There is no darkness in the one who searches our hearts. This confirms that God exploring our hearts and knowing us cannot be a negative, right? He will not use what he has found against us for his own gain, right? God is an explorer, not an exploiter, right? He's an explorer, not an exploiter. All right, verses 13 to 18. We we now move on to what are probably the most well-known verses in Psalm 139. The picture we get of God here is that he's not a deistic God, right? One who created the world with a certain set of rules and steps away from it. But instead one who's intimately involved with even the smallest of details in our world, right? You created my inmost being. You knew me when I was formed. You knitted me together. And this leads to the psalmist to praise God for being fearfully and wonderfully made, right? We've, we've heard this verse a lot, right? But what does it mean? Fearfully here is more accurately, accurately translated as reverently. The root word here is something that creates reverence and awe. Consider the feeling parents or siblings get when they first hold their child or sibling, Right? There's a level of awestruckness at the beauty of a life created, right? And then wonder of, wonderfully comes from the root word that means to be different, striking, remarkable, outside of human comprehension. So what that means is being fearfully and wonderfully made. It means that we are strikingly remarkable in a way that produces awe at God's creation, Now, I'll say, I think we can, in our individualistic society, like, overemphasize our uniqueness. Like, you know, we all have unique, like, fingerprints. And that's true, right? But we can a little bit overemphasize it. Like, you do also have a lot in common with other people. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I will say that we can marvel at the fact that God has formed us uniquely and, as a result, knows us uniquely, right? So we can do a little both-and here, right? I think two aspects, two more aspects of this section, and then we'll wrap, um, that continue to highlight the miracle that is the creation of the human um, are these two things. I was woven together in the depths of the earth, and your eyes saw my unformed body. So both are actually referencing back to Genesis 1 and 2 here. Uh, so the in the depths of the earth seems to be a callback to Adam being formed from dust, Right? And then the unformed body idea here, it uses the same word that Moses uses in Genesis 1-2, where he says that the earth was, for, or was without form and void. So it's that same idea. So I think it, both are highlighting the creation story in a way that highlights the magnitude of God's involvement and ingenuity in our formation, right? God in our formation has taken particular care just as he did at the beginning when he created the earth In the first man, right? And then one more point to consider in this section is that in knowing us since we were an unformed body, God's choosing to know us is not in anything we have done, so therefore we can't rob his knowing by doing anything bad again, right? But it's another manifestation of his grace toward us. His grace has chosen to know us, to search us, to love us, Right? Okay, so that's a passage. I want to ask, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to the overwhelming truth that God knows us and God loves us? I want to highlight two responses, and then I'll be in my seat, okay? The first is a quick hitter. Second is a story. Let's, hit the, let's do the quick hitter. Utilize the gospel truth of God's nearness and God's love to combat lies, right? Utilize the truth of God's nearness and God's love to combat lies, when you're, fear, when you're experiencing feelings of worthlessness, of loneliness, of worrying if what they say about you really is true, write out what is true based on this psalm, right? Write it out, that you are known, that you are in God's presence, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that God loves you and nothing can snatch you from that love. You stand in his grace, right? Right? I'm going to talk about this actually more in a few weeks, I think July 9th. Um, but one of the most impactful things I've ever done in my life is I did sort of an assessment on what gospel-assaulting lies did I, like, commonly believe. Like, which, what were the ones that the enemy used against me more regularly, right? And once I identified those, I wrote out prayers that talked about the ways in which the gospel directly combated those lies, right? And I, I want to tell you, I felt it closest to a closeness to God that I had not experienced uh, in my life before. And just being like, God, this is where I don't think I'm worthy to come to you, but you have made me worthy, right? And then it's just like, oh, I can come to you. <laughs> so then I did, you know? Uh, it's, it's a really, really great thing. Okay, so that was our first response, right? Combat the lies. Our second and final response comes in the story, or form of a story in Exodus. Uh, quick sort of background, but you guys... Most of you have probably heard of Moses. Um, Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt, right, into the wilderness toward the promised land. And when they were close, God would do the same. They sort of set up a camp. God would call Moses up a mountain. God would tell Moses the law. Moses would come back down. He's wearing a little veil. And he would tell the people the law. And then Moses would go back up the mountain. God would tell him the law. He would come back down and he would tell the people, right? Now, in one of these moments where Moses was up the mountain, It it was like 15 minutes, and the people were like, man, God and Moses have abandoned us. What are we going to do, right? And they really, really wanted to worship. So, naturally, they made a golden calf. And they worshiped that. That's what I, yeah, yeah. Um, Look, I can't say I'm any better than them. I, I definitely have golden calves. It's just, I just can't imagine being like, melt my jewelry and build a cat. That's God. I just can't imagine it. But, we have grace for them, right? Now, When God and Moses find this out, they are deservedly pretty angry, right? You see, up until this point, through the wilderness, God's presence had been with his people as protection, but also as a reminder of where they were going and why, right? But when God hears about what the people had done, he and Moses had a little bit of a talk. And so I'm going to give you the short version of the talk so we don't have to parse through. Um, This is Exodus 33 though. So God says this. He says, Moses, the people have betrayed me, right? I promised the promised land so they will be free to go to the promised land. I've already promised that. You can have it, but I will not go with them. Moses tells the people, the people will lament. Moses comes back to God and he says, God, if you will not go with us, we ain't going, right? God then goes, Moses, fine, I'll go with you. And, and Moses goes, God, if you ain't going with all of us, we ain't going, right? And then God is like, fine, I'll go with all of you. And then Moses is not just happy, right? God, God, the God of the universe answered Moses. And Moses is like, that's not enough. God, show me your glory. Right? Like, that's pretty bold. God, show me your glory. You know what God says? Okay. <laughs> so God, God says, okay. And then God shows Moses his glory. Like, that is a wild thing, Right? There's a lot here, but what is relevant to us? See, Moses knew the power of God's presence. He knew the vitalness of this presence as they entered the promised land. And he would not travel, travel without that presence, right? I don't know if you all remember the whole Moses story, but when Moses is first called by God in the burning bush, God is like, hey, go set the people like free in Israel. What does Moses do? He's like, no, I don't speak good. Yeah, right? I can't do it, right? God does not, God does not promise Moses like, hey, you're going to speak good, right? No, God is like, well, I'm with you. My presence is with you. So Moses here knows the power of God's presence, does he not, right? He has already seen that God's presence set free in an entire people from a powerful nation. He knows that God's presence parted the sea so that they could get away, right? And so when Moses is saying, we're not going to the promised land and you're, unless your presence is with us, it's because he has experienced the power of that presence, right? So I also think, like, and, and then Moses is like, has had this taste of God's presence. And he's like, I want it more. Show me your glory, right? And God honors Moses' boldness and faith in this, right? See, Moses wants more. Moses' response in God saying yes to him is, God, show me your glory. Glory. Moses, knowing part of God's character, wanted, made him want to know even more, right? He knew he was known by God, and as a result, he wanted to know God. This is what I'm calling us to this morning, right? As we are known by God, let that motivate us to seek to know God better, Right? He is calling us to ask for more of his glory because the more that you taste, the more that you'll want. You are allowed to ask for it, right? I want to look at one more passage as we wrap up that's related. 1 Corinthians uh, 13, verses 8 to 12. It says this. feels like it doesn't relate, but I promise it does. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known now. Right? See, what Paul is saying is that prophecy, knowledge, things like that that are good for making God known on this side of eternity, they are useful, but they will pass away because at one point we will fully be in his presence and we won't need to be sign posts to God because God will be right there. Right? But right now, we only see a reflection of God as in a mirror. But at that time, we will see him face-to-face. Right now, we only know part of him, but then we will know him fully. Right now, though, we are fully known. Pursue God. He has already pursued us. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.